This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast by those individuals who are interviewed for the Murder Chronicles are their own and do not necessarily represent those of Cavalry Audio. Hey, Murder Chronicles listeners, this is Carolyn, and I strongly recommend listening to Episode 5 of the Times Square Torso Killer before listening to this week's episode. You're listening to Episode 15, Confessions of the Times Square Torso Killer. You know, I had this very uh, brief encounter with Richard Cottingham as he was fleeing the scene of the double torso murders, I believe carrying the heads. He disputes that when we speak about that. That's Dr. Peter Vronsky. He's describing a probably less than 15-second encounter with a man who would change his life. This encounter would happen at the end of 1979, but he wouldn't write about it for nearly 40 years. And when he did, he would describe this encounter and the stranger he would refer to as my serial killer. This action started a chain reaction that no one could have predicted. And it all started with a twist of fate, a situation that had stranded him in New York City for 24 hours. First of all, I'm I'm a Canadian on on a work mission. I shouldn't even be in the United States. You know, I'm working for a Canadian company, but I know that it would be considered as working in the U.S. because I'm at that moment operating in New York, even if it's for 48 hours and so forth. So thing. I got to be back on a film shoot in Toronto the next day. <laughs> I'm already stranded here in New York. He needed to find a cheap hotel for the night in Times Square and would have a brief encounter with a man who had, unbeknownst to him, murdered two women dismembered their heads and hands, then doused their bodies with a flammable liquid and set them on fire in a hotel room before fleeing. Peter had no idea that this was happening, of course, because he'd been impatiently waiting in the hotel lobby for the elevator. Finally, the door slid open and there was this man, and he's hurriedly getting off the elevator as Peter was trying to get in. He thinks that when he bumped me on the leg that he was actually carrying the implements that he had used, the saw, the, all the restraints that he had with him, the straps, you know, instruments of torture. Now, that's what he had bumped me with, uh, not the heads. That he had taken out the heads at an earlier moment prior to my bumping into him early that morning. About, I'd say, 20 minutes before the fire department arrived, Vronsky is a Canadian author, true crime historian, and an investigator who is writing about the horrific killing spree of Richard Cottingham. Now, in episode five, we chronicled the investigation of the so-called Times Square torso killer, who would ultimately be unmasked five months later as Richard Cottingham in an unrelated kidnapping and attempted murder case. Again, I want you to get the most out of this interview with Peter, so please go back and listen to episode five first. It'll definitely be easier to follow along with all the crazy twists and turns that are happening right now. In episode five, I made a plea to Peter Vronsky and Jennifer Weiss. Jennifer 
is the woman who, some might say, has done the unthinkable. She befriended the serial killer who murdered her mother. Here's a cut from Jennifer from an interview from NJ.com. Everybody deserves to be forgiven for things in life. The magnitude of what he did is unfathomable. But I became friends with Richard for my mother's sake and for my quest. I desperately wanted to find Dita's skull. And that is the driving force behind what I'm doing. Whether or not he's telling the truth or not, we are getting bits and pieces of the truth. I'm doing this for the mothers who lost their daughters and my own mother. Now, when I was putting together episode five, I had really wanted to speak to both Jennifer and Peter. Because for more than five years, since 2018, they have visited Cottingham in prison more than 30 times. They've exchanged countless letters and phone calls, too. And I was really looking forward to speaking with them. But unfortunately, they declined my interview requests. If you'll recall, Peter said... Hi, Carolyn. This is currently a rapidly unfolding case Jennifer and I find ourselves in the middle of with numerous confessions we are facilitating. We are not really able to interview on it other than the few sound bites we have given to media to get other jurisdictions smelling the coffee. Maybe further down the line. Talk about a tease, right? But the good news is they both listened to the show and they really liked my work and they heard my plea. Here I am at the end of episode five asking Peter and Jennifer to come on the show. So with Jennifer and Peter, if you're listening, reach out to me. I'd love to speak with you about the amazing work that you're doing on this case. Just days after the Times Square Torso Killer episode dropped, both Jennifer and Peter reached out, thanking me for the episode, and they also agreed to an interview. Unfortunately, Jennifer wasn't able to make the call. But today, Peter Vronsky shares some never-heard-before details as he pulls back the curtain, sharing insights of his and Jennifer's process with Cottingham. He'll also update us as to whether they've come any closer to realizing Jennifer's quest to make her mother whole again. Her whole purpose in talking with Cottingham was to reunite her mother's body parts that Cottingham had so brutally removed after he murdered her. And we'll dig into all the whys. The biggest, of course, is why now? Richard Cottingham has been locked away since 1980 after he was convicted of five murders. But because of what Peter and Jennifer were getting from him during these interviews over the last five years, it's coming to bear that those five murders that he was convicted of back then were just the tip of the iceberg, and that Cottingham's grisly deeds more closely resembled the work of serial killer Ted Bundy in terms of how prolific he really was. Something Peter will explore in his new book, American Werewolf. Because when it comes to Richard Cottingham, every night was a full moon. Called American Werewolf, and it's looking at how Richard Cottingham, first of all, was not caught. You know, Richard Cottingham is only 18 hours difference in age from Ted Bundy. When you look at what he did and how little known he is, mm-hmm. and how soon Ted Bundy was caught, the great serial killer genius Ted Bundy. Cottingham is an extraordinary, um, anomalous serial killer from an extraordinary era, that so-called golden age. He is the last of them, I think. He was, um, in that Ted Bundy way, lured women, except he didn't have that kind of necrophilic need to destroy them in the way Bundy did. 
Well, it sounds like he got off on sexual violence, and so he... He got off on dominating and controlling his victims, which is very typical of serial killers like him. He was very sadistic. Um, and, of course, control of the victims about sadism. Why do you think that Ted Bundy is so well-known? I mean, it's gross to say, but... and and. Richard Cottingham. Easy, easy. Cottingham kept his mouth shut. From the moment he was arrested, he speaks to no one. Until now. And when you listen to the details, I'm just going to tell you, when it comes to the confessions of the Times Square torso killer, Mark Twain's quote that truth is stranger than fiction is really just the beginning. What's actually more spot on is the whole quote that was written by Twain, which actually says, Truth is stranger than fiction, but it's because fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities. Truth isn't. Because who could have ever predicted that the brutal serial killer Richard Cottingham, who's been in prison since 1980, convicted of five murders back then, and now claims he's responsible for up to 100 homicides, and that he is now confessing these crimes to the daughter of one of the women, Dita Gudarzi, that Richard Cottingham had murdered, sexually tortured, and dismembered, and that the man helping her over the last five years, Peter Vronsky, just happened to be in the same hotel, bumping into Cottingham as he was fleeing away from the scene. So let's get back to that hotel. In December of 1979, when Peter is a young man who finds himself in a really awkward situation. Essentially, Peter came to New York on a work project that got delayed a day, and so he had to find a cheap hotel which brings him to the Travel-In Motor Lodge. It's super sketchy, he doesn't want to be there, and he's impatiently waiting at the elevator in the lobby, and it feels like it's taking forever. Finally, the elevator door opens up, and this guy walks out and sort of pushes past Peter, and they kind of do this thing where they go back and forth, you know, trying to get out of each other's way, you know, the whole nonverbal but kind of rhythmic, you go, then you go, I'll go, you go thing, which went on for an extra couple seconds. But when that back and forth thing stopped and the guy gets off the elevator, he bumps Peter's leg with his bag. It seemed like he was holding up the elevator forever, and so I looked at him, you know, to give him a, like a dirty look, you know, like a, you know, I don't think you get on the elevator, you jerk off, right? Um, and, and so I, there's this regular geschmuzzle standing there, you know, a New York guy, right? And the only thing I remembered about him was his hair. It was almost like a page boy, Prince Valiant um, haircut. And the, the only other thing was that he was kind of looking right through me. Even though he was looking toward me, he was looking through me. He was like looking behind me. And I, what I think he was looking at was the light coming from the street. Because the elevators, it was a very small lobby. He was like fleeing. He held up the elevator because he wanted to see if the fire that he had set up in the room had taken hold. And he was looking through me at where he had to get out into the street. He doesn't need to go to the fourth floor. And yet, on a whim, he does. Knowing it's where the man with the sandy blonde hair who just bolted out of the elevator came from. I'll go to his floor. And so I hit his floor. When I got there, when the doors opened, the first thing I smelled, they later described it like the smell of burning chicken feathers, or um, obviously it was hair. That was, you know, the smell of burning hair, which has a very distinct smell. I assumed that's what you get for, I think it was $47 or something Sunday night, you know, or $45. When Peter walked off the elevator and into the hallway, 
There was a lot of commotion that he hadn't expected. It began to get gradually just hazy. And eventually, when I came around the corner, that's when I saw now what was smoke clearly, just a little bit rolling along the side. I never saw any flames or anything like that, but the staff were banging on doors. There were housekeeping people there. They were raising an alarm. There wasn't an alarm. There was, they were raising an alarm. And I just went down the fire stairs. And as I came out, the fire department was arriving. I was just coming off the ramp into the street. And the first thing I said was, hey, I'm not staying here. I, I got to go find another place because I was stranded in New York and I needed to find a cheap place very near the place I had to go to the next morning. He didn't want anything to do with whatever drama was happening. And he'd left before the firefighters had come to put out the flames. He didn't know that first responders would find two dismembered bodies of young women. And so the next morning, when I got to my destination, I saw the newspaper in the lobby and read the story about the fire that I was caught in yesterday morning, Sunday morning, for the first time. And, and did so when you I make the connection. No, I, I only made the connection to the fire, mm. not to the guy on the elevator, right? The guy on the elevator was one of, you know, 30, 40 people I had passed mm -hmm. that morning. And, and the idea that, he, that there was such a thing as a serial killer that would be somebody that you might have passed anonymously that way, you know, without blood dropping off their fangs and thing was not a popular concept. The word serial killer, you know, only emerges maybe two years later. It would be a few years later when Peter finally put it together that the guy that he ran into for a brief moment in the elevator was the Times Square torso killer, Richard Cottingham. Until I saw his picture, maybe two years later, 18 months later, when he's on trial, I knew that they arrested the guy who had perpetrated that fire crime and he was charged. I never saw his picture. I see this picture and I go, that's the, and he had the same the hair, right? It was the same hair. This nondescript guy that he literally bumped into and for whatever reason, instinct followed this random stranger's movement by pushing the button to the fourth floor, a floor that Peter wasn't planning on even going to. This one random encounter began a lifelong interest that Peter had in understanding the motivations of serial killers. So that was my first brief encounter with what I didn't know what it was I had encountered. And this was before you had that word serial killer. And we didn't know exactly what they were. And so the idea of this anonymous guy that I bump into in the elevator being, you know, the neighbor next door who might be a serial killer or your husband that might be your ser a serial killer or a father or classmate, all those concepts we have today wasn't a concept at that time. So I never thought about him until much later, like layers of an onion. And 40 years later, when Peter chronicled this encounter with Cottingham in 2018, in a story that he'd written about his so-called serial killer, would change the course of his life for the next five years. We'll be back after a quick break. I lived a whole other life as a journalist and filmmaker and producer. And so when I began to write, one of the first things I wrote about was my first encounter with this serial killer. And I describe it as my serial killer. And Jennifer, um, as I was writing my last book, Sons of Cain, 
which was supposed to be my last book on serial killers, Sons of Cain, a history of serial killers from the Stone Age to the present. I don't want to write about these mutts anymore or think about them or, or anything to do with, with serial killers or the like of them. I'm about to send in the book, and as Cottingham, I've described him as my serial killer in the way the two girls he left there, whose hair I smelt burning, who I inhaled in my nostrils. But can I just uh, stop for a second? If he'd already taken the heads off, is that because he'd burned their torsos and, and it would yeah, be... Yeah, the pubic hair. Pubic hair, he, okay. He set fire as well. He specifically directed, sprayed certain... It wasn't like they were roasting torsos. There were just parts of them. And one of the parts that he had burned were their genitals. So so their, their heads he had taken with them. So what I had smelt was their pubic hair you know that's how close i got to the victims i think that the way that you're describing it is i can see how it would be literally seared into your brain because that's how close you were it's kind of seared in my chemistry in a sense because i yeah. inhale particles of their charred corpses and and intimate particles if you want to even put it that way i always wondered i knew that how um one girl was unidentified the other, of course, is Didea Gudarzi, Jennifer's mom. And I knew from the public record that she was identified partly through her shoes and partly through the fact that she has a cesarean scar. And, and that narrowed down the search and that she had a child a year before she was murdered that she had given up for adoption. And and I always wondered who whether, first of all, that child knew, and I knew it was a, a, a female infant. Um, I always wondered whether she had known what happened to her mother, what that death meant to her, whether she vanished in some horrific adoption system, in some institution. And, 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 and so I was very much aware of the existence of a daughter the day ahead. And so as I'm handing in my book, the daughter calls me on the phone, right, uh, late at night. It's it's Jennifer. And she introduces herself to me and she read my book and she tells me that she, you know, she starts telling me her story and, and that's it, right? And, and she tells me she's searching for her mom's severed head. She wants to reunite it with the torso. When Jennifer and Peter met, he was struck by the family resemblance. Jennifer is the spitting image of her mother, Dita Gudarzi. And by 2018, Jennifer had already initiated a letter-writing campaign. The letters led to Jennifer talking to Cottingham on the phone and ultimately actually meeting him in person multiple times, where she gained Cottingham's trust and later was able to get Cottingham to agree to speak with Peter, who in a way wanted to confront his own demons, well, demon, the man that he'd met in the elevator, who had changed his life. When I had my reunion with him that Jennifer had sponsored 30 years later, more, in 2018, I sat down with him. First thing we talked about was, you know, the first thing I wanted to know, does he remember me the way I remember him? And he didn't remember me at all. But the first thing he asked me, though, and he asked it in what was a genuinely appeared to me a worried, concerned way, because did the police interview you? <laughs> and, 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 and they didn't. But had the police interviewed me, I couldn't tell you whether he had a mustache mm -hmm. or not. 
but I would have made, I, I imagine myself as a terrible witness, but I do remember the haircut. And, and the other thing I remember, other than the kind of blank look in his eyes, was, um, you know, there was like a sheen of sweat on his face. Well, yeah, I mean, he, he'd murdered two people, you can imagine, and set them on fire. So, well, you know, he and, was and chopped their heads off and uh, hands as well. And then right. cleaned up the room. They found not a single usable fingerprint in that room. He was in that room for three days. Imagine cleaning out a room that way. Peter explains that Cottingham's hairstyle back then really made an impression. It was the thing that he remembered most about that encounter in terms of Cottingham's physical appearance. got very insulted when I talked to him about that because he says, you know, I was wearing a wig. Um, no, dude, you had the same haircut at trial two years, three years later. You, you know. This is an interesting point. He's just constantly lying, right? Like you have to parcel out like what is truth and what is just his fantasy. And it's all like a poker game to him. Like why lie about something like that? He's already in jail forever. Yes. Why lie about that? And a lot of things he's lied about because he's embarrassed about them. It's interesting, too, that since reading all the police files on the Torso murders, um, there was another witness who was, they traced her down by her credit card entry. She was standing right behind him in line when he checked in. She was the next check-in. She could only remember one thing about him. And she said he had really nice hair. It was blow-dried in a strange way. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Peter goes into detail the work of interviewing Cottingham, that Jennifer has a way of getting the serial killer to open up like nobody else. And all the while, Peter is there, taking it all in, because he needs to figure out who these victims potentially are, where they were murdered, the circumstances of their murders, and if they're really a Cottingham victim. Serial killers are notoriously compulsive liars. Everything they say needs to be vetted and corroborated with evidence. Peter talks about the weighty responsibility that he has come to feel, not only to the victims, but to their families. I'm always very much aware that I have like, damn, I got Didea's daughter, um, her family line, and I know all of um, Jennifer's kids. You know, she's got four kids, and and that's you know Didea's granddaughters, and and and, and so I, I had that same connection with you know I had that same connection on the on the McGraw case, you know, where I had the granddaughter of the victim working with me. Oh, that's, so a, that's in both cases, there's there's a strange. You know, intergenerational victim, almost supernatural presence, and and certainly in the in the case of Jennifer's mom today, that that kind of connected to me in the way other cases started coming to me. Also, in the same way, almost orphans uh, showing up at my door, in the way Sonia Ruiz McGraw showed up at my door with her grandmother's case, and 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 that too happened almost on a strange. Um, synchronous level as I was, as, as Jennifer got Cottingham talking and Cottingham identified, described these 
murders that I began to see, like, what murders is he talking about? Because Cottingham has no memory of where he did them or when he did them. He just remembered certain things about the crime scene, certain things about the victim, and kind of, you know, a road sign he might have seen on the way there. But whether it was in 1968 or 1972, he's got no idea. And, and so, but he'll remember the victim, their appearance, but not, he will have no idea of the name or the nomenclature. So he was killing in places he didn't know where he was. And, and, and so I located one of the murders he was describing, and it happened to be Sonia's Sonia's grandmother, Lorraine McGraw, Lorraine Montalvo McGraw. And this right? came out of the intense interviews that you had with Cottingham and Jennifer. It's like five years now, right? Five years now, yes, exactly, out of those interviews. Peter's referring to Sonia Ruiz McGraw. She's the granddaughter of another of Cottingham's victims, Lorraine McGraw, who Cottingham says he murdered on March 1st, 1970. Lorraine's body was found beaten and dumped by a water tower in South Nyack. She'd been strangled. Sonia, inspired by Jennifer's work, also started sending letters to Cottingham and was able to build a trusting relationship over 18 months through emails and phone calls to get him to tell the truth of what happened to her grandmother. From these interviews, they've been able to work with law enforcement when they've been willing on trying to back up these confessions. Right now, authorities in New York and New Jersey have officially linked Cottingham to 17 murders. But it hasn't been easy. There were a lot of politics involved. And, and one particular interview that Jennifer did uh, when COVID started, where on the one crazy occasion, the police saw their way through and it was a huge task force of police officers from New York State who brought Jennifer into the room for half a day with Cottingham. The one time they did that, and out of that, as a result, that six hours of Cottingham with Jennifer, for sure, six cases got closed in New York, including the case that I worked on then to close it with Sonia Ruiz McGraw, the murder of McGraw in, in Rockland County. That was closed in May and announced in June 2022. And the five cases, well, I should say out of the five cases Nassau County closed and announced last week, um, as a result of what Jennifer got out of Cottingham, I was able to put together four of them. Because you have to convince, when you go to a police department and, and, and you want to persuade them that there are unsolved cases linked to a particular perpetrator, and, and I'm only working with one perpetrator. So not like I'm solving all these different cases with different perpetrators. This is an accident that I fell into that I know Cottingham better than anybody else. In fact, Cottingham has told me that, you know, he said to me, you know, you know me better than I know myself. Um, and what he meant is that I factually know him better. Um, I know stuff about, you know, his grandparents that he did not know. He was shocked to find out things that his family hid from him. and. Um, where he was and when, and I read all his medical records and his employment records. I mean, I, I, I know his history. I may not know his personality or his psychology better than him. I don't think anybody will ever will, and I don't think he knows himself that way. He's, he's an enigma to himself. 
I noticed a little skepticism in your voice when you talked about they let Jennifer in for a half a day, like it was a victory for this to happen. Yes, and yes, absolutely. It, absolutely, because then it became a huge, huge battle to act upon that. The idea that an amateur, like, oh my God, we let Jennifer in, an amateur in there, but we're all hardcore investigators, and then the DAs, oh, how can you let a, a non-law enforcement person in there? You know, we can't use that. Um, and, and so all the intelligence that was derived from that meeting could have been used over if they had brought Jennifer back in and more could have been gathered from Cottingham because he responded to her in the way he would have never responded to the detectives, um, but in their presence. That's the problem. It was in their what? presence because, because Jennifer has this rapport with him that no cop can have that even I can't have, um, and, and that a female cop cannot have. It was humiliating to them. you you got different DAs, too. Um, you know, Nassau County DA is not the same as the Queens County DA, or the Bergen County DA, and, and or the Rockland County DA. So it so depends on the jurisdiction. It depends on the elected district attorney, the politics. Um, and the other thing is, is jurisdictions are sabotaging each other. They want to make their own jurisdiction the priority, and so they will not risk assisting another jurisdiction. Um, because remember, Cottingham more or less was under the control and in the custody of Bergen County. He's in the corrections um, system of New Jersey, imprisoned through Bergen County. Uh, it's very easy for Bergen County to ask for Cottingham to be um, transported away from the prison or have a prison visit. Um, much easier for Bergen County than it was for New York. Uh, Bergen County refused to assist New York in that series of cases and rushed ahead to close their own cases. So there's politics there and the politics go back to prohibition days. You know, when, when New York, and you got to remember, for those who are not familiar with the geography, Bergen County is just across the river from Manhattan, right? So people from Manhattan look at Bergen County and, and a lot of people who do a lot of business and money and laundered money and uh, political money are doing it, you know, from the wealth of Bergen County. This is a very, you know, it's an extension of, of, of New York and it's as a power center and the police departments there, they're rivals going back, you know, back to the, uh, you know, gangster days, like who stole whose bribes over whiskey transport across the Hudson River kind of old Hatfield and McCoy rival days that they don't even remember why they hate each other, but they won't talk to each other. They've already gone out with NYPD looking for that bag that Cottingham claims to have put the severed heads and hands from Dita Gudarzi and the still unidentified young woman who was with her. And of course, the million dollar question, will Cottingham give up the information that Jennifer needs to restore her mother? More Murder Chronicles after the break. He's told us where they are and I've taken him through it again about five months ago. I've okay. gone through it with him again. And I asked him for 
extra details. I asked him to tell his whole story again. He added another detail to his story, which brought me back to the same place where we were before, but perhaps a hundred yards, not even a hundred yards, perhaps 60 yards further than when we looked, than where we looked when we looked. So um, we looked in the beginning of 2019 by COVID times, the nature of NYPD has radically shifted through that period. Cold cases are no longer a priority for them. They're forgetting them. This search will happen, but it will happen now under the auspices of a television show. So that's okay, how it's so, going to happen. They'll pay so for it. We'll find those heads. You're still dedicated to finding them. Before, were you, it sounds like you were trying to work with NYPD to find them, but you don't really need them because Cottingham is a direct conduit to to finding it. Do you need to? Yes, well, it would have been nice and, and they made the effort because NYPD made the effort because now we have all sorts of techniques with which we can identify the other girl. Aside from getting Jennifer the peace of mind that she wants to reunite her mother's right. body parts, right. um, you know, there's a chance still of identifying this girl, which is why NYPD just jumped on this. You know, they were doing this within, I'd say, nine weeks of my first meeting with them. They, oh, they were, great. they did it. They went out and they did it. Before we wrapped up our interview, I wanted to discuss with Peter the mind of Richard Cottingham. After spending so much time with him, he of all people would be able to explain the serial killer's motivations for, for finally opening up. You mentioned it a little bit earlier about her ability to make a connection with Cottingham, which probably makes her, you know, sick inside. I don't even want to imagine what that's like for her. But like, why were the police so they can clearly see that she has a connection. They can see that you guys have a special connection to each other and to the case. Like, what is the threat? Because, you know, interviewers, interrogators, that's the strategy that they employ all the time, like, hey, I think you have a better connection with this person. You take the lead. Because, because, because they're limited by what they can do. Um, you know, it's the same reason I was useful to them because, you know, with, with Rich, you have to talk to him and you have to talk to him for hours. What cop has time for that, right? Um, they don't have time for that. And, and, and but nor, can they, in the world of law enforcement, where there's a kind, you know, the chain of evidence that's essential, and you have a function, and it's a process, and it's a very almost ritualized uh, process of justice to the wheels of justice. Um, you know, Jennifer, she would have to. Uh, how could they let? an outsider like Jennifer or myself in. Um, they can use us and they use Jennifer. They used me, um, but they can't acknowledge us um, because it would be acknowledging their own inability to get that last final X factor. It's not that Jennifer and I can close these cases without the police. Um, Let's just take it in the case of Cusick in Long Island, where you know there was a DNA case there. A lot of people did a lot of work, um, but Jennifer, in the end, Jennifer got Cottingham 
talking about doing something out on the border of Queens and Nassau County, mm-hmm. right? In that four hours, nobody knew what it was, who it was, when it was. I pieced together talking then to Rich and 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 um, asking him about you know his uncle who lived up the road and how he used to like fishing and the beaches out in Long Island and he would start chattering away and eventually the sunrise we talked about movies and taking girls you know we talk about um dating a lot what it was like to date for me i'm 10 years nine years younger than him so we share dating stories we had that report cottingham and i and so when we talked we talked for hours and hundreds of hours with them and but for I mean, that's the way sometimes you would have to close these things. Believe me, as an interviewer, I totally understand what you're saying, not obviously to the depth of what, in which you have spent time with this serial killer, but what did he say about the ones that he let live and the one, what was his process? Because that, uh, that that really surprised me that, that there was a process. Yes. Um, well, there was no process. There was just inspiration and... Um as you and I would have, like you meet someone, you like them or you don't like them. Mm-hmm. So right? he would kill the ones that he didn't like, but he, yeah, would... he killed a girl. He, he killed a girl for lying to him. Um, he likes the ones that were honest with him. Um, the ones who wouldn't try to steal that big role. You know, that big role was more than just a ruse. That big role was also the key to life or death. Um, if she went after that big role, she was killable. If she didn't go after the big role, if she was a nice girl and was honest with him, then she was survivable. So, um, um, he was playing God. Yeah, exactly. As he put it, he said, um, killing doesn't make you God. Knowing who will live or die does that. It sounds to me like another game of his where it's like, Oh, well, if she does everything that I say and exactly the way that I say it, then she can live. I feel like the poker, I understand that he plays poker. I feel like his brain is somehow like these are all games, his games that he's playing for his own pleasure. Essentially, it's random. It's completely random. And he talked about the randomness of it. If I turn left instead of right, if she did this instead of that. He described I would kill one girl who told him, you know, she was a vegetarian. And then a few hours later, she ordered a cheeseburger and he realized she was lying to him and so he killed her. It was theorized that Cottingham dismembered Jennifer's mother, Dita Gudarzi, and the still unidentified young woman who she was with because he wanted to destroy evidence and he didn't want anyone finding out who the women were. Peter explains, according to Richard Cottingham, what happened at the hotel before he ran into Cottingham so many years before. Realized they were being held hostage. They thought they were just partying with him. And so at the end of the day, like, he's got to pay. Time came to get paid, and then, especially Dina. Dina, the other girl, the other girl was watching cartoons on TV, and Dina was the professional. Dina was the experienced working girl. Dina was the one who's mobbed up. Dina was the one who was saying, I've been here now all night, and I was supposed to be back in Trenton yesterday, and I'm not now. 
and I've been here all these hours, and, and you're looking at about a thousand dollars. Cunningham realizes if he want to, you know, if he's gonna screw around with Dita. He's screwing around with her sponsor, and if he wants to come back to that bar, he's got to take care of Dita now. And he could have afforded her. He Cunningham rolls of cash, you know, and he knew Dita. They were friendly. Now Dita will say something wrong. That'll set Cunningham off. Held there, tortured. Then she's dead. And, and and now he's stuck with these two dead bodies in a hotel room. Of course, people saw him with Dita. People would see him many times with Dita. They know each other. He saw her when she was pregnant with Jennifer. He knew her for years. He, he knew Didea Godarzi. He knew that she had a mob sponsor, which I confirmed. She worked out of a mob old um, bar where she could have not worked unless she had a sponsor. Um, he was a maid guy from a, from one of the five families. The police found him, interviewed him. He knew her. For a man who has been described as having no heart, no soul, no emotion whatsoever, the question remains. After staying silent for so many years, why is he confessing now? It's a combination of he has the power to change people's lives by either taking life or letting life go on. He knows he had that godlike power to know who lives or dies. And it's always about power for serial killers. It's not about the sex. It's not about um, fetish or desire. It's about power control. And so he has enormous control to now use his powers for good. No serial killer essentially believes himself as evil. They believe in themselves as compelled to do the things they did. They don't see themselves as an evil force. I don't think any evil force sees themselves. I'm sure Hitler thought he was doing good things. They all do. All evil people. Uh, so serial killers are the same way. He has some cognitive remorse, having done this time, having lived things, having experienced as well from both Jennifer and, and Sonia Ruiz McGraw, both of them have forgiven him. That too is very important for him psychologically, as have other victim family members too, um, including Karen Miller, the daughter, the sister of Denise Velasco. So he now can use this power he had to let some women live. He can always also use that power to let some families rest in peace. Today, they are running out of time, and Jennifer and Peter know that. Cottingham is 76 years old. He's in poor health, suffering from diabetes and kidney disease. And he's confessing to so many cold cases. But will there be resources allocated to get justice for his victims and their loved ones? The incredible work that you and Jennifer have done and the time that you have spent, you know, with this serial killer to get these answers, you know, at the end of the day for the family, you know? Yeah, so I wish we could have done better. Um, I, you know, just that, that one session that law enforcement led Jennifer into opened so, you know, Diane Cusick would not have been closed if um, they hadn't brought Jennifer in that day. And, and she just confronted Cunningham um, in a way they couldn't, they didn't. And all that intelligence came out of that. We identified Cusick, we identified McGraw, 
brought in Sonia McGraw, and you know Jennifer. In a way as well, uh, Sonia was inspired by what she read about Jennifer. You know, it's, it's women inspiring each other, not just women, but but people inspiring each other in this as 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 well. Jennifer was inspired by what Nadia Fitzani did to go in and see this serial killer in 2009 and get him talking. And so she followed in Nadia's footsteps. Um, she brought me in and she established that rapport and opened the whole, you know, opened the whole different world. And it's been quite a ride. I don't know what we're going to do next. There's other cases, the ones that, the, the ones um, that the five that were closed in Nassau County are of 13 cases there. The other ones he couldn't remember they're his, but the other ones, he could not sufficiently remember the case details to for Nassau County to check them off with their case files. They, they weren't persuaded by him that they're his, only these ones, these five. Um, and that's the way it will re remain. Those cases will now remain forever unsolved. They're very likely his. There's a whole bunch like that. It, Jersey right now, still in Bergen County. He's talking about them. Other family members are taking their inspiration from Jennifer and now from Sonia McGraw as well. A lot of these families are dealing with generational trauma because of Cottingham's ruthless and horrific crimes. Getting answers is some resolution for them, which is why the work that Jennifer and Peter have done and continue to do over the last five years has really helped the victims' families. You only have to listen to Darlene to understand the power of what they're doing. Darlene, after 50 years, recently found out that Richard Cottingham murdered her mother, Diane Cusick, when she was just three years old in 1968. I was just like in shock, but happy, you know, that finally we're getting somewhere. We have an answer, there's a DNA match. They also said besides the DNA, they also had, you know, we're building a strong case. And um, and I was just so grateful and thankful and, and hopeful again. In December, 2022, Richard Cottingham was sentenced to 25 years to life for killing Darlene's mom, Diane Cusick. Before I let you go, I wanted to thank you for listening and subscribing to The Murder Chronicles. And if you're interested in an ad-free option that also gives you access to bonus content where my producer, Brandon Morgan, and I discuss the episodes every week, please subscribe to Cavalry Plus on Apple Podcasts. The Murder Chronicles is a Cavalry audio production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Josh Windish edited and mixed this episode. Music by Soundstripe. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. 
Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.